Hi, everybody. Savannah Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing well. Here with G. Edward Griffin. Now, he is the author of a book I highly recommend. Uh, you, of course, want to get into your Zen position. Can it can, can be a tad blood boiling called The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. And he's the founder of Freedom Force International, which is actually hosting an event entitled Global Warming, an Inconvenient Lie in Phoenix, Arizona, from December 2nd to 4th, 2016, featuring speakers such as Lord Moncton, William Happer, Patrick Moore, and many more. How are you doing, Mr. Griffin? How are things in your world these days? Well, I'm doing well, and everything in my world is wonderful. But my world, I I suspect, is shrinking <laughs> as the tide rises around us. <laughs> but my world is wonderful. Thank you. Good, good. Now, global warming is a topic that I have touched on low these many years, I guess 10 years uh, that I've been doing this show. And... It seems like if you plant the sort of tree of truth deep enough and you're just kind of patient, then eventually the forest of acceptance grows up around you. And uh, you've pointed out recently that conversations you've had with people about global warming or climate change seems to have shifted. And in terms of people's priorities uh, in America in particular, things like the economy, trade deals and immigration have vastly outstripped climate change or global warming as areas of concern. Um, What are your thoughts on how public opinion has shifted in this, I guess, contentious topic over the last few years. Well, I think you, you said it pretty well, uh, Stefan. Uh, it has um, shifted to real issues. Uh, global warming, I think, uh, is becoming increasingly obvious. It's a manufactured uh, crisis. It's not really a crisis at all. Uh, they started off, as everyone knows, calling it global warming, and then they realized that uh, the planet was not warming and it was becoming obvious, so they had to change their uh, their name, so they called it climate change, and that's supposed to make it all right. Uh, but I think by now everybody's figured out, well, the climate always changes, so what's the big deal? And um, so the cry for wolf has been going on so long, the wolf hasn't shown up, Uh, And so uh, now the public is just getting either bored with it or catching on to it, which I think is even a more interesting phenomenon than getting bored with it. I think uh, our recent elections uh, sort of touch on this indirectly. I think that the uh, elections we saw, regardless of what you think about the candidates, there's one clear message, and that is that the public is becoming immunized, I think is a good word, uh, to the media. Uh, becoming immunized to all of the techniques of the establishment to manipulate thinking. So there's this, uh, finally, this breakaway from political correctness and rigid uh, organized thinking. And along with that, we find this global warming mantra. It also is, I think, going down the drain. And so those are very positive signs to me. And my job, and yours too, I suspect, is to accelerate that process and bring the world back to sanity, if that's possible. Well, it has been a conversation I've had with the world for a long time, which is that if you are concerned about environmental degradation or resource predation and so on, then the first thing you'd want to do is stop governments from deficit financing. Because when governments deficit finance, what they're doing is they're promoting the consumption of scarce resources in the here and now at the expense of the future. So if environmentalists were really concerned with um, environmental uh, use or, or if we were concerned about peak oil and so on, then the first thing you'd want to do is stop governments from deficit financing. Uh, but that has never been on the agenda of uh, env- the environmental movement, which seems to be, you know, they say uh, the watermelon, right? It's green on the outside, but it's red or Marxist on the inside. Uh, it's using people's legitimate concerns about uh, environmental predation to promote a kind of surrender of the rights to the masters who will protect you from your fellow man when of course it is the masters who are your real danger yeah exactly you've got it 100 percent. and of course you and i are, are sort of in the cat seat we, we have time and energy and aptitude i suppose a little bit to study these things and so we feel it's so obvious but you know i, I can see my fellow passengers on this spaceship called earth most of us uh, are so busy you know, trying to make a living and trying to get the kids to school and make sure that they get a good education and they're not uh, corrupted by all the negative influences in society. We're trying to pay off our debt. And I, I put myself back, you know, when I was a young fellow doing the corporate game and all that. And we just don't have time to research these things. So uh, I fluctuate sometimes between that uh, semi-elitist uh, 
attitude, well, what's wrong with people out there? Can't they see the obvious? And then I come to my senses and say, well, no, I, I'm no different, uh, it, except for a few chance circumstances in my life. I might be still going along with all of that, too. So uh, I, I really can't blame people for not um, being as well informed as we think they should be, because after all, they still are trusting their, their major media uh, as the source of uh, good information. Well, I think along with my statement earlier about the elections, I think that this this election shows that the people were not only going against uh, the political establishment, but against this media as well. So it's all good. I say this is good, and I don't know how big or how long our window is going to be open, but right now I think we have a real opportunity to uh, to accomplish some of our long-range goals if we really keep at it and don't sit back and say, oh, well, we've, we got rid of Hillary or whatever we think was the evil force there. No, it's not gone, folks. It's still there. It's everywhere. We just That was just a little tip of the iceberg that uh, seemed to melt off. There's a lot of corruption and a lot of political power yet underneath that. And uh, But we at least we have it's exposed now. We have a chance at it. Well, we've turned the lights on and we've uh, maybe started to turn the tide. But uh, as uh, I think it was Churchill, I think in 1941 or 1942, was saying, uh, it's not the beginning of the end. It may, however, be the end of the beginning in terms of changing things. And I think that's sort of where we are. Those of us who are sort of in the revolution forget how far behind the rest of humanity is. It's always earlier than you think. And that's an important thing to remember. But, you know, like that old Rolling Stone Stone song, time uh, is uh, on my side. Well, Facts are on our side. And I think that the immigration question I've been finding particularly fascinating and its effects on, say, Brexit, its effects on Donald Trump's candidacy and and people's sympathy for what he had to say. My whole life growing up, uh, I was told, well, you know, you don't don't really have any kids. You know, uh, uh, overpopulation is a huge issue. We need to really, really bring down population, particularly in the first world, because, you know, people in the first world use a lot of resources and we're going to be overpopulated and so on. And then now, now that I'm I'm older, uh, suddenly the the story has changed. It's now well, you know what? In the first world, there, there just aren't enough people. It's really, so what we have to do is bring in a lot of people from the third world into the first world. It's like no, no, wait, hang on, <laughs> hang on. That's not the story that I was told when I was growing up. I was told we needed to reduce our population, particularly in the first world, and now. We're told we don't have enough people, and now we need to bring people from low-resource consumption countries to high-resource consumption countries and give them welfare to boot. And it's like, I think when you feel jerked around that fundamentally by a narrative, uh, it's going to shake some complacency and apathy loose in your rafters. Yes. Well, nothing makes sense uh, from the establishment narrative, as you say. And if you really look at it, and, and the first impression is that these people are making mistakes. They seem to be very intelligent. And how could they make these mistakes? Look how stupid they are. And maybe that is true to some extent. But I, in my view, I don't think they're making mistakes at all. I just think we have to recognize that they have a different agenda than we do. So if we understand what their agenda is, they're not making any mistakes at all. They're, they're executing their plan brilliantly. And we just happen to be uh, in the way. So we have to be overridden. We have to be brainwashed. We have to be, in some cases, even eliminated in order to get the obstacles out of the way of their agenda. So we come back to the agenda. What is this agenda? And um, it's clear to uh, many of us that it's a now they call it global governance. Uh, it's, it's funny how they like to change their, their key phrases and their uh, their slogans. It used to be the new world order. Well, that sort of become overused now. So they, well, we don't call it the new world order anymore. Now we call it global governance. Well, new, like like all criminals, they need to go through a series of aliases to escape uh, detection. Yeah, but it's all the same thing, and it boils down to the the ideology of collectivism, all powerful government, and people serving the need of the state which means they serve the needs and direct and directives of those at the head of the state, the, the leaders, so-called. I call them the rulers. They like to call themselves leaders. That's a better word. And, uh, and so that is what it's all about, is how to build this beehive society around the world. And in order to do that, uh, with the least amount of resistance from the victims, uh, the populace, you have to convince the, the poor souls out there that this is all uh, for their greater good, you know, the greater good of the greater number. And so once you get that in your mind, you say, well, yes, I guess we do have to give up our standard of living. And we do have to give up uh, these rights and these liberties and, and our privacy. Because after all, you know, the, pl- the planet is 
warming, and uh, if it warms, the tides will come up, uh, and the cities will be inundated, and we'll all drown, or we'll all go out, run out of food, or whatever it is. We've got to give up everything in order to just survive. And that's the same trick they try with all of the crises, whether it's the war against the climate or war against terrorism, war against pornography, war against crime in the streets, uh, all of these wars, so-called. If you really look at them carefully, you'll find out that it's pretty much the same little cadre of people sort of egging it on and in many cases financing it. Uh, the name George Soros, of course, comes to mind. It's very much in the news of late. We know that his money and his teams are behind uh, a lot of these violent demonstrations in the United States now. Um, and it's a direct model of the same uh, tactics that were used uh, in Europe and uh, and in Egypt and so forth. is to destroy the existing order, is to create chaos, is to put people into this fear, this panic state, so they will accept any outrage against their personal liberties or their standard of living uh, and their privacy, any outrage, they'll accept it because look at all this, these terrible things that are happening. And that's the trick. Once you understand that that is not a mistake, but that that is a cal carefully calculated plan, then everything snaps into place. And I, I'm happy to say that I think even uh, Joe the plumber, you know, has figured this out now. And uh, this is what's encouraging to me. Now, the last time we chatted, we uh, sort of made a promise to the listenership, which uh, I think it would be good to dive into now, that we would talk more about the theoretical underpinnings of collectivism. And it is a word, of course, that uh, means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And the fact that it's not taught is kind of important as well, because individualism versus collectivism are the two fundamental poles in, in at least the ethics or politics uh, of philosophy. So I wonder if you could help people understand the term as a whole to differentiate it from all the other goop that's generally pushed out there. Well, sure. And uh, unfortunately, there is no one single definition, I, I don't think, that really adequately describes it. Um, but if you want to start from the general and then move toward the specific, uh, depending on how much time you have to explore, I think you would have to start with the core definition of the word itself, collectivism versus individualism, that there's a clue in there, it's what it's all about, the word collective versus individual. Okay, that's what it's all about. Uh, the It's a war of, of an, two ideologies, and they are based on opposite concepts as the most important central source of authority in society. Does it come from the individual or does the source of authority and sovereignty in, in society come from the collective, a group of people? It's the issue of which is more important, the rights of one individual or the rights of a group of people? Well, it's, it's a tricky question, really, because you think automatically that there's a mathematical uh, element here. That certainly, if you have the rights of two people, that is equal to two times the rights of one person. If you look at rights as a mathematical concept, a mechanical concept, well, then you're going to be tipped, I think, into the direction of collectivism and all the issues that follow. But so let's start with that. What is the source of rights? You know, does it come from the individual or is it a group uh, mathematical concept? Well, many a debate and uh, many a book has been written on this, as you know. Uh, you've probably been in all of the debates and probably have written some of the books. But um, it was a hard one for me to overcome, uh, Stefan, because when I went to school, uh, I was squeezed out like toothpaste at the University of Michigan. I thought I had an education. Now, looking back on it, I had a, an indoctrination. I realized that. And one of the things that I had been indoctrinated with is this concept of the greater good of the greater number, that the individual had to be sacrificed, if necessary, for the greater good of the greater number. Now, doesn't that just makes sense. Well, it did to me at time at that time. And then I finally realized somewhere in the last half of my life, I suppose, I realized that, wait a minute, what is this thing group? What is a group? Can you touch a group? Can you see a group? And it occurred to me that no, you can't. You can you can see individuals, you can touch individuals, but group is an abstraction. It's in the mind. It's a, it's a mathematical concept in a sense. It doesn't really exist. Without the human brain to, con to grasp the concept of more than one, 
which is a mathematical concept, an abstraction, without the human brain to, to conceive of that, group doesn't exist in any form, not even abstractly. It's like forest. Forests do not exist. Only trees exist. You cannot you cannot cut down a forest, but you can cut down trees and so forth. So once I got my brain around the fact that this word group is an abstraction and not even a, a reality, it's, it occurred to me that to say that the group, which doesn't exist, has more rights or superior level of rights to human beings, which do exist, I thought, there's something wrong here. And uh, that is what really started me to explore this whole thing, Stephen, and to realize that the group really doesn't exist. Well, once you understand all of this, you come out the other side and you realize that there is a philosophy that does produce the greater good for the greater number. And that is individualism. Because by guarding the rights of the individual, now multiply that over all the individuals, you have the greater good for the greater number. But once you deny that individual, the tree of the forest, deny the right to exist because it's uh, subordinate to the mathematical concept of many trees, well, then you, you've opened up a condition whereby some tyrant or demagogue can come along and say, I speak for the group. I represent the party. I have been elected through a majority process. And I speak for the group either because I have the votes behind me or because I've been to school and I've read some books and I'm smarter than everybody else and I know what's best for them. And if I don't take care of them for the greater good of the greater number, they won't do it for themselves. They're going to make big mistakes. And so I have an obligation for society. There's the other word for group. Uh, and so all of these things get muddled up and you come out the other end with a tyrant or a demagogue being an absolute dictator. And where are your rights there? You know, so it's back to the question, what are the origin of those rights? And and uh, the individualist believes that the individual is born with those rights at the time you're born. Now, some people would say they're God given rights. Other people have trouble with that word, but they'll say they're inherent rights. Uh, you know, it's like the difference between. Uh, hardware and software. Uh, if rights are hardware, they're part of you. They come with you. They belong to you. But if they're software, then they can be added to you. And so the collectivist says that rights are software. Rights are granted to you by whom? By a state, the group, the collective. And that means the rulers of the group who speak for the group. So there in a nutshell is the, is the foundation of this whole debate of what the difference is between collectivism and individualism. Once that platform is in place, then you can talk about other features of it, you know, which is, you know, uh, so many other aspects to it, like uh, how do you and how do you bring about uh, positive reform? Do you allow people freedom of choice or do you force them to do what they're supposed to do because you say they should do so? And, and from there, you can go on for hours and talk about the, the delicate differences of how you apply this philosophy of whether the group or the individual is supreme. It's very tempting for us, I think. And I've, I've sort of spent many years like, why is this philosophy so attractive to people, this philosophy of collectivism? Because I don't like to be diminished in the face of society. I mean, I don't like to shrink down to a nothingness in the face of a universal obligation called society. Why do people find – and I think it's something biological about it to some degree. Like none of my carbon atoms, none of the carbon atoms that make up my body are alive. Yet together – we are alive. We get this emergent property called life. None of my individual neurons can think or create or reason. However, the aggregation of all of that wet wear in my brain produces consciousness. So for us as individuals, the, um, the component parts are much less than the combination, right? There are these emergent, the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And it's very tempting, I think, to, to take that biological reality that uh, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and transpose that to society as a whole and say, well, with regards to society, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Now, the whole, as you say, can't speak for itself. But uh, there are lots of people who like to appoint themselves as the interpreter and the voice of the collective and that you're supposed to obey. And um, there is, of course, great value in understanding that uh, for an individual human being, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. There's no reason whatsoever to take that and, and put that to an aggregation uh, of, of human beings and sort of use the analogy of the body for society as a whole. And I think that's where people um, find it compelling, but where logically it can't be extended. Yes, totally on target there, Stephen. And there's another feature, too, is that even within the individual, we have instincts, uh, you know, the tribal instinct, uh, an instinct for survival. We know instinctively that 
in the face of danger, if uh, we clump together like like any herd of animals, especially in the mammal kingdom, uh, the the young would be devoured by the predators if they weren't sticking with the herd as they moved uh, through the forest and so forth. And so that we have that instinct too. Uh, we always cluster. Most of us cluster into herds or communities or tribes, and it's a it's an element of uh, self survival. So we think, well, if, since we have this instinct and uh, it's, it's part of the survival mechanism, it must be part of our human nature, and therefore we can apply it to the state, <laughs> and that's a huge leap, you know. Uh, it, and so that it's tempting, as you say, and I think that is the very word. It's tempting. It's it's uh, it's. Um, it's not good uh, intellectualism, I'd say. It's the easy answer. It's the it's the writing of the essay without doing your homework. You know, you might get a B on it, but you're not going to get an A because you didn't really delve into it. So uh, it's sloppy thinking, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I guess I'd grade it as a C for communism slash collectivism. But uh, and I think there's something we, we you talk a lot about the elites, and I sort of want to point that out. I think the the nature of the elites is becoming more clear now, whereas before it was just like conspiracy theory. Now the understanding that rich and powerful people tend to act in concert with each other to preserve their status is not something that's considered particularly radical. But I think one of the things that has happened, and one of the greatest tragedies I think of the West, was the government takeover of education in the sort of mid to late 19th century, because elites like to promote idiocy because idiots are easier to rule. However, idiots, particularly when you have a democracy, idiots become threatening to the elite because you've taken away their capacity to think and reason and therefore going to charge off a cliff in, in immediate self-gratification, forget the future and so on. So elites promote idiocy, but then idiocy also promotes the elites because now you have this dangerous, uneducated mob that you need to control because they're going to do very silly things with their vote. And I think this cycle is something that the internet is beginning to break, but I think is a particularly chilling uh, pattern in society. Yes, uh, very astute observation, I think. Uh, I think the elite really doesn't want um, idiots. Um, we might call them idiots, but I think what they want are quasi-educated robots, uh, probably um, pretty um, have some pretty high-level thinking capacity. They can learn complex routines. They can they can learn to mimic uh, uh, phrases and mantras that sounds as, as though they have great value to them, but which are merely slogans. They're very good at memorizing slogans, and they can even rise to have great emotion for these slogans. You know, uh, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need, is a slogan of Marxism, and it sounds so good. And uh, I remember the first time I came across it, I was in that category of being programmed by slogans because it sounded good, it had to be good. Then I found out what there was a, a question left out of that. Of course, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need, but how? That the implied, the implied answer to that question was through force. We will decide who is in need and who has the ability to give. And we will divvy it up because from each according to his ability to each according to his need is good. Therefore, we will force you to comply with our view of how that's to be applied. And so the question of how these things are administered is never discussed. It's just the end goal. The end goal sounds so good. But when you get down to the means to the end, that's where it falls apart, you see. And there, by the way, is one of the differences between individualism and collectivism is that the individualist believes in voluntary action to do all these good things. And the collectivist says, no, no, we can't leave it up to you because you will probably make the wrong choice. So you either put that damn seatbelt on you or we're going to put you in prison. We're not going to give you the freedom of choice because you might not put it on otherwise. So there you go. Well, and... Another reason why I think this stuff is so compelling is that's our first 15 to 20 years in society. Uh, this is how the family runs. The family does not expect the baby to go out and get a job while the parents lays around in the crib soiling themselves, right? I mean, you, you have to have uh, a, a sort of socialist setup uh, from each according to their ability. Well, the parents are the ones who have the money and the resources and the children to each according to their need. The children need uh, those resources. So we grow up in this amniotic sack of voluntary socialism. So 
so to speak, in the family. And then if we never grow up and we never mature, and one of the ways of preventing people from maturing is to, to convince them not to have children because it's one of these things that you better grow up pretty fast if you have kids. And so I think this this early taste of of a benevolent authority who provides us uh, provides for us and, and protects us and and uh, uh, gives us all the resources we need to to flourish and survive that is very tempting to translate from the family to the state if you don't grow up. But of course, the family uh, is voluntary and the state is not. The family is related and knows each other. The, the, the agents of the state and the citizens generally don't. Uh, and of course, the, the ethics are completely different. Uh, that which is voluntary to the family is uh, totalitarian uh, in the state. And um, But it's, it's, it's easy for people, especially if, if we now live these crazy extended adolescences where, where people are still in school in their mid-20s and, and so on, and then burdened by debt and, and have a tough time achieving the kind of independence uh, and, frankly, tax status that makes them want to shrink the size and power of the state. Um, so I think this extension of early family life into adulthood is one of the ways that we find it so tempting to promote the state to the position of parents for the rest of our lives. It's so true. And we've talked about all of these natural things that are in either in our genome or in our society that tends us to to accept collectivism as a natural state. And that is it is it's a tough one because it's real and uh, it requires some um, some serious thinking and some exposure to uh, uh contrary thinking, you know, and being willing to open your mind and consider alternatives before you can see through these things. And you know how we are. We all like, if everybody's running away, uh, everybody's running down the street in a certain direction, we tend to say, I don't know what it is, but I think we better go too. (laughs) And that's natural. And in many cases, it's probably necessary for survival. It comes from instinct, I suppose. Yeah, it's like those old studies where somebody walks down the street with their head craned up and they start to gather a herd of little like-minded ducklings who are all looking to see what the wonderful thing is up there that they can't see. And and people think that that's a negative, but no, I mean, if everyone's running away, you assume there's a tiger out there somewhere. Uh, if you're wrong, well, all you've done is expend a few calories running away. Um, I mean, if you're right and, and there is a tiger out there, you've expended a few calories running away. If you're wrong, you get eaten. So sort of the cost benefit of not following the herd in general is, uh, is pretty cost. And I think there's a gender difference as well. I mean, it's been, I think, fairly understood biologically for uh, human beings and for other uh, species that, um, you know, eggs are more valuable than sperm. Eggs are more rare than sperm. And the the male disposability aspect uh, or men sort of circling the wagons to protect the females, to protect the eggs, makes good sense from a tribal standpoint. Like you can lose uh, all but one man and still um, (laughs) come back uh, as a tribe. But if you lose your women, uh, your toast, uh, or if you're down to just a few your toast. So I think that this idea of sacrificing yourself for the tribe is more of a male phenomenon biologically given the commonality of, of sperm versus the rarity of eggs and the different investment uh, in, in reproduction between males and females. And I think that combined with the state uh, gives us this idea. That, like we never say, well, collectivism means that uh, uh, women should be slaves to men. Like that never sort of really, really occurs to us. It generally is, well, you know, let's, let's harness male productivity, let's harness male taxes. There was a study in New Zealand recently that pointed out that, that women as a whole get about 150000 dollars worth of benefit out of the state over the course of their life then they pay into it and it's men who are funding the state and this seems perfectly natural to us because of this biological imperative to take care of women and to view men as to some degree expendable well yeah <laughs> how can you really argue with that as a fact of course uh, all of those things trigger emotional uh, backlog you know because uh, we get into these uh, gender discussions and um, i've done it a couple of times with uh, some ladies in, in my circle, in my family. I have great, great respect, and I, I revere them, actually. But if I suggest that um, maybe there is a reason, uh, economic reason, that uh, women do not get the same pay for the same work, uh, I, I have a problem on my hands because they think I'm denigrating women, and it hadn't occurred to them that uh, women do get pregnant, 
and they do have children, and they do have an affinity toward their families that is higher than to their workplace. And if there's a conflict at home, the women are going to say, I can't come into work today. I've got to take care of Johnny or my aunt or something. Whereas a man will come into work, even well, some of them, some of them won't, but of course. <clears throat> but there's that tendency, and I think employers have learned that if they hire a um, a woman with children especially, he better just factor in the fact that they have to take care of their children and that's fine. I mean, I've done that. I've had, in fact, usually the ladies who work for me in my small organization all have children. Sometimes they bring the kids in to work. Is that okay? They, Mr. Jim, oh, sure, bring the kid in. I like to see him, you know. They bring their dogs in, you know. It's like a big family. I know that cuts down productivity. But it's good, and it's what you should do if you have ladies uh, with families in the workforce. Now, does that mean you don't pay them as much as you would a man? Probably, in the long run, it figures into the uh, factors into your economic model. But just to discuss those matters, it gets to be touchy because some people, male and female, have been sort of conditioned by the narrative in the media that if you don't uh, don't agree to the mantra that you know it's even a taboo topic, um, or then there's some, you, you are biased or you're racist or sexist or something like that. It's funny. Well, this is the uh, the game of the leftists and the collectivists, right? Is that they look, uh, they survey the fields, uh, the varied fields of human endeavor, and they find areas where there are statistical disparities between groups. And then rather than explore the possible causes of those statistical disparities, they ascribe it all to racism, sexism, phobias of, of various kinds and so on. And then they start uh, jimmying up the resentment and the frustration. And then they say, you see, in a state of freedom, there's bigotry. But don't worry, we're going to have a lot of government laws and a huge amount of government power. We're going to take care of that bigotry for you and everything's going to end up equal uh, on the downside. And uh, that game, of course, can never, ever end. <laughs> yeah, the love will just flood in and overcome all. Just, yeah. just one more law, one more regulation, one more waving guns in people's faces, and paradise will be achieved. Don't worry. <laughs> It'll be perfect. Right. Well, you know, that's kind of what we're facing in this global warming issue. Uh, that's very much on my mind because, you know, our, our big event is coming up, as you said, in, in the first week of uh, December in Phoenix. And um, everybody's uh, uh, in this debate uh, realizes, I think, almost everybody, that the pro global warming theorists are losing the battle for popular opinion or public acceptance. They're definitely losing. The last figures I saw, which I don't trust anyway, because I think the polls are rigged to make it look like people uh, favor or believe in global warming more than they really do. But I could be wrong on that. But even if that were the case, um, it's still the number of uh, people who now say they don't believe at all in global warming, that it's a fraud, uh, I think is about 48% is hitting that tipping point. And this is frightening, frightening the daylights out of the pro-global warming people because they're losing that battle and they know that they have to, they have to move quickly while they still have a couple of percentage points. And uh, we'll see what happens now with the new presidency in the U.S. That might, it might already be too late. But anyway, they're moving quickly. And one of the things they're trying to do is to pass laws to force people to remain silent if they disagree on global warming. I just got a communique from some lady, I think it was up in Washington state. There's a law that just went on the books that from now on, all textbooks will be, must be, be thrown out of the school system if they discuss any opposition to the global warming theory. Now, just think about that. Illegal to express your opposing opinion on an issue. This is the hallmark of collectivism. The, in other words, you cannot allow freedom of choice or intellectual activity. You decide what's good for society, and then you, by decree, will slam it down their throats. This is something that I think awareness is really growing quite a bit about, that if you have to suppress a dissenting opinion, 
it's not because your position is overly robust, to put it as nicely as possible. And I think people are really beginning to understand that. And we saw that with the Donald Trump play out where the mainstream media just threw everything, including the racist kitchen sink at the man. And um, I think people kind of got, well, okay, if you had really great arguments against his, against his positions, wouldn't you use those? You know, as the old saying goes, slander is the last tool of the loser. And the, the, the desire to suppress an opposing opinion is because you don't have a good answer for it. And uh, that that recommitment to the ideas uh, of free speech, that let's have a marketplace, everyone's welcome, everyone come in, the bad ideas will be very quickly revealed as bad ideas by competent debaters and communicators. But I think people are saying, okay, well, if you have to suppress this information, it's either because it's so rancidly evil that, uh, you know, it would poison children's minds or whatever. And I think it's really tough to make the case that skepticism about uh, 100-year climate uh, predictions uh, is is inherently evil, and not that ideas ever could be, I think. But I think now people are beginning to understand that um, the, the, the goal of suppression of, suppression of opposing uh, viewpoints is serving to undermine whoever is calling for it. And people, I think, look even more skeptically upon people who want to suppress in their positions. Yes. Well, before we move on, I'd like to make a little plug for our meeting, if I may. Anybody that is interested in this debate on global warming, uh, we, we put together what we think is going to be the all-time answer to this issue. We're bringing together uh, about a dozen or more top experts from all around the world who are just going to blow this uh, global warming ship right out of the water. I mean, the facts are there. Uh, the only trouble is that people have never heard all of these facts from all of these experts brought together. So that's what we're going to do. And I would urge you, if you have any interest in this uh, issue at all, uh, just look us up on the internet. Uh, it's easy to find. It's called uh, inconvenientlie.com. That's the name of the uh, of the meeting. It's an inconvenient lie, global warming. So inconvenientlie.com, and you'll see all about it. And um, I hope you'll be able to make it. You'll be able to meet some of these people. Of course, we have that <clears throat> the stellar performer from uh, London, Lord Moncton. He will be there. But uh, professors from several universities will be there. Tim Ball will be there. I, uh, Happer will be there. Professor Happer. Um, and with the law be there, I'm just telling you, and it's going to be uh, a really quite an event, and you don't want to miss it. Well, well said. One of the things that, uh, in getting ready for our conversation today, one of the things I found surprising was to sort of switch to the international treaty slash UN aspect of things, and all of these things are kind of tied together, I think. I wasn't aware that international treaties completely overturn constitutional norms within the United States. And if I was surprised by it, I'm going to guess that a few of my listeners are also surprised by it. I wonder if you could help people understand what that means and, and what kind of threat it poses to their remaining freedoms. Yeah, that uh, <clears throat> that uh, issue really goes back quite a few years to, uh, well, I've forgotten the name of the case right now, but a Supreme Court case had to do with migratory birds, I think, up in Canada or something like that very low level of seemingly importance, but the issue was extraordinarily important. And that was, as you just said, that a treaty which is ratified by the Senate of the United States is an obligation that is considered in the courts of law to be higher than the Constitution itself. Now, you and I might disagree with that decision uh, very intensely, as I do. But nevertheless, that is more or less what is on the books. Now, there are some some wishy-washy parts there with certain conditions that may not be so and so forth. But in general, uh, that is the principle that has been used uh, when approaching treaty law. And uh, so when we look at these um, treaties, um, Trans-Pacific Treaty, for example, and all of these trade treaties, and we think, oh, well, they're just treaties, that they don't make any difference. They make a huge amount of difference because as the courts will interpret those treaties, it won't make any difference whether they violate, violate your right to freedom of speech or to private property or even to your physical location. If it requires, for example, if a treaty, as interpreted by an international court, decides that you're living in the wrong town and allocation of economic resources are so important that you are needed in Cincinnati instead of Los Angeles or in Detroit in, instead of San Diego or whatever, and they'll put you on a bus and you will go because treaty law is above the Constitution. Now, that is what we're talking about, talking about, and it is extremely serious, and it's where we're headed with international uh, treaties. 
And and when we think of how difficult it is, and purposefully so, to change the Constitution in the United States, I mean, the legal barriers are enormous. But a great way, of course, of chipping away at the Constitution is to set up a series of treaties overseas that abrogates those rights. Then you don't have to go through the troublesome process, the the barriers set up by the Founding Fathers for constitutional changes. You can just use that external lever of overseas treaties to begin to chip away at the foundations. Yeah, that's... uh uh, Kissinger said that. I, I saw the video on him a little while ago. He, he was talking at some international meeting and he said, well, you know, um, the uh, the illegal uh, we can do immediately. The unconstitutional mm, takes a little longer. <laughs> what he, he, he was an honest, if, if despicable man. <laughs> totally honest. <laughs> now, the World Bank is something I wanted to touch on as well. I had it in my notes for our last conversation, but we didn't get around to it. Um, it seems that uh, what's going on with the Deutsche Bank, what is going on with the uh, European uh, banks, uh, and of course the Central European Bank, what's going on with the Federal Reserve these days, is this sort of last desperate attempt to stave off the inevitable pop of the bubble that is going to occur as a result of all of this fiat currency money printing all around the world, the extra $8 trillion that was, that was injected into the Obama presidency by not having any kind of budget. Uh, this... Um, I think people are going to really, really need to get up to speed on World Bank, IMF, central banking, and so on. I know it's a big topic, and I want to really recommend your book again, The Creature from Jekyll Island. We'll put a link to that below. But uh, if you could give people the the sort of few minutes overview, because this is going to start shouldering its way into people's consciousness, I think, sooner rather than later, and more urgently rather than less. It's a very simple concept, isn't it? Uh, You cannot just continue to increase debt forever. At there's some point, depending on your own personal uh, credit worthiness, there's some point at which your debt exceeds your capacity to carry it and you're crushed by it. Um, the United States has had the greatest capacity to carry debt of any nation in the world, primarily because it, up till recently it's been the most prosperous, most productive, the strongest nation in the world. And it, its credit uh, was very worthy. Uh, it was going to produce things. It was going to deliver things. And then that gradually shifted to the power behind sustaining debt was no longer its economic ability to produce, but its ability to send Marines to some uh, nation and uh, topple the government or send operatives to cause civil disorder to topple the government. It's, it was its military and its covert operations to topple governments and, as they call it, bring about regime change that frightened uh, practically every nation in the world, or the leaders of those nations, into accepting the economic burden of American debt. And uh, so that has been an easy ride for the United States, and we have benefited from that as citizens of the United States. But as I said a moment ago, everything has a limit. Even that has its limit. And we've seen that in history. Uh, even the Roman Empire fell. And, uh, and even the British Empire fell without having the United States coming along to pick it up and put it back on its feet. Uh, the United States, I believe, and everyone seems to be in agreement with that, is teetering on the edge of stumbling and falling. And I think it's inevitable uh, I don't think it's possible anymore just to stop. Uh, if we just stopped what we are, have been doing, which is impossible, by the way, because we have these continuing commitments. But even if we were just to put a complete stop on it, the momentum, I think, I don't think we can avoid paying some consequences and some very serious consequences. Now, what are those consequences? Well, if the nations of the world do not want American dollars anymore, because either they don't trust them or they're already so uh, so many of them that they don't buy anything, that the inflation has destroyed their purchasing power, then all of those billions and trillions of euro dollars, as they call them, they're just U.S. dollars that are overseas that the rest of the world has been using as the currency of the world, they become not very interesting anymore, so they'll all be sent back to the United States to buy up whatever they can with them before they become totally worthless. Now, that'll be a tremendous uh, boom for our uh, output. All of a sudden, everybody wants our goods and services, right? But they're buying them up with our old depreciating or depreciated dollars. And we'll have a great rush on our products 
uh, if we're producing any. Um, and But people will be buying up everything. They'll be buying up land, businesses, stocks, bonds, politicians, anything that's for sale. And uh, that's how the money will come back, and that will dilute the purchasing power of our already diluted dollar to the point where suddenly we will experience, very in a very short period of time, I believe, we will experience the inflation that we should have experienced over the past two or three decades. We've been exporting our inflation because other nations had the need for our dollars. When they no longer have the need, all that exported inflation will come back with the dollars and we it'll cost us a thousand dollars for a loaf of bread. That's we come down to that. The dollar will be destroyed. Now, the, I really don't think that'll happen because before it happens, the other mechanism will kick in, which is well, where they're going to try and convert the U.S. dollar. The Federal Reserve notes will all be converted over to some regional or international currency, and it'll be offered to us as the solution. This, that will be the savior. We're not going to experience that uh, that trauma if we just uh, calmly and passively accept this new currency, which will probably be called the Amarol or uh, the Bancor or something like that. It'll be an international currency. It'll be exactly the same as ours, except we won't know it. They might even say, look, we're going to put a little bit of gold or silver behind this in a basket of currencies and assets to make us feel good, you know. Maybe 5% or 3%. Oh, well, it's got gold in it. Everybody will be happy and they'll get the new money, and but they'll find out that, oh, after a couple of months, the prices are still going up and it'll be right back to where they started from. Except one important thing will have happened. We will have lost, America will have lost its currency. Now, a nation runs on its currency and its military. Uh, you could argue that we've almost Maybe we already have lost our military now to international influence, but you could argue that point. But once you create a bank or, or an Amaro, there's no argument. You no longer, this nation no longer has control of its own currency, which means, let's crank that out. It means we will have finally lost our sovereignty as a nation. We will now be part of this thing called the New World Order or global governance, and the game will be essentially over. Well, and of course, we've seen what the crippling lack of sovereignty and lack of options to do things like um, uh, devalue currency, which is what Greece would have done, of course, uh, when facing this much debt. These are terrible solutions, but they're still better than uh, a sort of universal currency across Europe, which uh, allows Greece to borrow at subsidized German rates and then uh, gives them no capacity to uh, to uh, do, to monetize their way out of their debt, which would warn investors off and so on. So even these sort of fail-safe fail message uh, methods, which weren't great, but at least functioned to a small degree, have all been taken away in the EU. And I think we can see the results where, you know, there's, there's migrants crashing across uh, every border. Uh, borders are beginning to dissolve. Uh, populations are getting increasingly restless and frustrated and angry. And um, this uh, universalization of currency, you know, the only thing worse than a local fiat, fiat currency is an international one. Yeah, there's no escape, is there? Right. Right. And that the signals which, which would warn investors uh, and, and provide sort of quasi-market signals back to people about the stability of currencies and the stability of governments are generally removed from the equation. And if there's one thing you want to do, if you keep stubbing your toe, is have it hurt you so that you stop doing it. And uh, when you get that kind of anesthetic, a lot of rot can spread undetected. Yeah, so true. So I don't know, uh, you could go on and talk more about it, but I think uh, we've covered the main points. It's it's not good, except there's one more point that maybe uh, we should consider, and we're back to the elections again. Uh, there's sort of a, a euphoria among uh, some of our friends who think, oh my gosh, we've at least broken the establishment. And it seems that way, and I'm I'm sort of in that camp myself, but I'm not <clears throat> I'm not blind to the fact that the powers that be probably have anticipated this very move quite a while ago. And if I were sitting around that little table making a decisions for the, on the part of the elite as to what to do now, I think my solution would be very clear. I would say, well, let's, uh, we know the, the bubble's going to burst. Let's pick the time and apply the pin. 
and will apply the pin at such a moment in such a place in such a way so all of the blame will fall on the Trump administration and all these idiotic uh, conservatives or cons constitutionalists or conspiracy theorists or whatever you want to call us uh, all of these people they'll say I've really brought this about and that could be a very effective counter move on their part I think we ought to be prepared for that I'm quite sure that the same has occurred to one Donald J. Trump, and uh, we would not. I would not be surprised if he had a few aces up his sleeve with regards to that. I also do have some hope, and uh, it's a weird way to use hope, but I do have some hope that the elites do not want the livestock to expire. And they know when the gig is up. And the normal expediency um, when uh, currency reaches the end of its cycle is to provoke a war. And I think Hillary would have been that option, particularly in the Middle East with Syria and a no-fly zone with Russia, which could have led to a significant uh, war. So the normal solution uh, when fiat currency reaches the end of the cycle is to provoke a war because then people will accept austerity uh, in the case of war that they would not have accepted in peacetime. And you also will get rid of a whole bunch of people um, who may be inconvenient to your plans. But I think war under Trump is not going to happen. Trump is aware, uh, and I think he's already put the warning out, if I had to guess, to, to Wall Street saying, if you pop the bubble, there will be some significant negative consequences. But I think that the elites who want to continue to rule and who want to continue to have productive tax livestock on their tax farms that are variously colored across the world map, I think that they may have realized that they put the screws on too tight. They need to loosen things. Uh, they may uh, be in accord with Trump with regards to cutting corporate taxes, cutting taxes, renegotiating trade deals, because you don't ride your horse completely into exhaustion and death, right? You have to give it a chance to rest and recuperate. It may be that possibility, um, unless the elites are completely pathologically suicidal and self-destructive and just want to watch the world burn. And I don't think that is the case. I think they're very practical human farmers. And I think they may realize that uh, the, the, they need a reset, a soft reset, rather than a hard reset in order to continue to reap the gains that they've uh, historically achieved. Well, that's certainly a plausible uh, scenario. I, I admit that. Uh, but I'm not also, I'm, I'm aware that they may also think that they see this rising tide of uh, opposition and awareness to their plans. And they may decide that they could sacrifice a few farms in order to re retain control. I don't know that, I don't know how they're going to contain the rising awareness unless they uh, they bring about some kind of a catastrophe to, to short circuit this learning and awareness process only in times of great crisis do people close down their brains you know so i'm just thinking that they are probably are holding a great crisis as a, a serious option and um, i know they're they're not going to just sit by and do nothing they have a plan for it so that's what we're not either so uh that's the way it goes. All right. Well, I really want to take uh, time to thank you, of course, for the work that you've done. Uh, really wanted to remind people the creature from Jekyll Island. We'll put a link to that below. You can find more of Jedrick Griffin's work at realityzone.com and freedomforceinternational.org. We will, of course, put the links to those below. Thanks so much for a really great and enlightening conversation. I'm sure we'll get many warm comments just as we did in the last few conversations. And uh, just a reminder to go to um, uh, Inconvenient Lie. It was a dot com. It's dot com. Yes. In Inconvenientlie.com to check out the upcoming um, uh, conference in Phoenix, Arizona, December 2nd to 4th, 2016. And uh, thanks again for your time. Always a great pleasure to chat. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure indeed.